leading by example as parents. So, you know, if you're going to ask the kids to do something, put away their phones, you know, have a clean environment, use their manners, then lead by example, because otherwise our, our kids are quick to pick up on hypocrisy. They're quick to pick up on what doesn't match. Addressing body image challenges and creating healthy connections are two very important things for parents of adolescents. Dr. Alicia Nadiman educates on both. She's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win This Year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Alicia Nadiman. Dr. Nadiman is a board-certified psychologist in behavioral and cognitive psychology. She works full-time as a home-based primary care psychologist for elderly veterans, maintains a small part-time private practice, is a business owner in the anti-aging skincare industry, and lectures annually on professionalism, communication, behavioral medicine, and diversity. She has held multiple leadership roles in the Arizona Psychological Association and has long overseen diversity advocacy efforts in her community. Dr. Nadiman also serves as the Arizona Early Career Psychologist Ambassador to the American Board of Professional Psychology. She most enjoys watching people dream differently as they grow in confidence and leadership skills. Alicia, welcome to Win This Year. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. You are someone who has made and continues to make a positive impact in the fields of mental and behavioral health treatment. What's your why? What got you started? What drew you to this field? So I've always loved strangers. I was actually a very shy little girl. But even as a shy little girl, I still loved connecting one person at a time. I feel like there's always been this beauty that comes from connection and vulnerability. I was that little girl you didn't want to sit next to on a plane because somehow this little five-year-old got you to open up all this stuff and you <laughs> get off wondering, why did I just tell her all that awkward stuff? Um, but that feeling of just holding space for someone, the intimacy that comes with sharing and bonding and connecting hearts has always been wonderful. And in my career, I feel like I've really had the opportunity and honor to guide people to their highest potential so that they can feel more confident in their skin, both physically and emotionally. That's fantastic. I mean, you talk about what the world needs now is that willingness to listen and that willingness to guide. If we could have millions more like you, we would be starting to be able to conquer the challenges that we're facing collectively right now. So within the field of mental health, what areas interest you the most and why? So cognitive behavioral psychology, um, and the, the why is it's one of the unique parts of psychology where you just see, well, you see a tremendous amount of change in a short period of time. Behavioral weight management is actually an area that I fell into that became a niche for me for weight loss for many years. And for me, the part of the why there that was really significant is it's one of the, the places on psychology that actually felt quantifiable. Like we certainly have measures and scales and things like that, but there's nothing like that scale, the number, the weight, the body mass index that comes down as our patients were really experiencing how incredibly empowering it felt to be in control of their health, their weight, their appearance, their confidence from the inside out. Uh, and so that was actually something that I was really excited about, especially in the onsets of my career. Now my career has taken multiple directions, but that cognitive behavioral piece, helping people change the words that they say to themselves, the words they speak into the world, their thoughts, the actual words that are coming out of their mouth, and then their behaviors, their patterns, their choices, it was so empowering to realize how much control we actually do have over our joy, our quality of life, and truly just our destiny. I love your dual approach. You know, when you talked about your why, and then you talked about some of the fields that interest you the most within behavioral health, 
you talked about connecting with people, that heart aspect, but I love that you also have the head aspect. You want that mm-hmm. data. You want to be able to measure it. You want to be able to prove that this is actually having an effect. And that's, if you get that combo, the head and the heart together, you can, I mean, as you know, you can create positive change. To, Absolutely. We're going to be talking about a, a couple of your areas today of understanding and practice. One of those areas is teen body image. And while the term itself may be self-explanatory, what is the definition of body image and what makes for healthy versus unhealthy body image? Yeah, it's a great question. So body image, as I see it, is a person's thoughts, feelings, or perceptions of the aesthetics or sexual attractiveness of their own body. Um, and in the teen population, as you can imagine, teens are incredibly suggestible to influences, social media messages, um, societal messages around body shape, weight. So when I think about what is unhealthy as far as body image, I think about it's when you believe that what you look like equates to your value as a person. So someone with a negative body image is then going to often be fixated on wanting to change their actual body shape to the point of body dysmorphia. And I will actually teach my patients because here, you know, my patients will sometimes come in at morbid obese levels. I don't want them coming in with this message that you've got to lose 200 pounds before you have worth. That's ludicrous to me. So it's like, no, you have worth just as you are today that weight, that shape, whatever it is you're carrying, very likely came from a place of wounds and hurt. And so we've got to dig into multiple levels of that because beyond the weight is so much more as to how we got here. And I want you to help learn how to own your beauty inside and out at any body shape, right? So then a healthy body image aligns with feeling comfortable in your own skin at any size, any shape, any weight, and being generally happy the way you look, feeling good about yourself. And it's about valuing who you are, not just for how you look. So having worked with patients along this spectrum with weight challenges, I really do work with patients who even in obese body shapes feel incredible, beautiful, desirable, irresistible. Um, There's a successful kind of component to feeling proud and happy in their skin, even though they have goals of getting to a healthier weight, not for the sake of looks, but for the sake of having less, less pain having less of that weight to carry around, having better nourishment. Um, and then with you know, underweight, for example, we also have concerns around malnourishment. If there's anorexia, bulimia present, is unfulfilled, depressed, or anxious personality styles. And that disease that can sometimes contribute to happiness. I think sometimes in society, we think that if you look a certain way, you'll be happy or miserable. And the reality is simply not that. There's so many other factors that go into it. You mentioned that illusion that sometimes we hold on to, that if I looked a certain way, I would just be happier. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, a moment ago, you know, working with teens and talking about the challenge of of social media. You mentioned that teens are particularly vulnerable to body image issues. Why? What is it about those years that lends itself to that challenge? Yeah, so teens are, I think, especially vulnerable because they're going through so many changes, physiological, social, psychological changes as a normal part of growing up. They want to fit in through puberty. Adolescents' bodies go through a lot of changes that can feel awkward. They can be difficult to understand. They may not look particularly like anybody that's immediately surrounding them. So there's sometimes a confusion around what does that mean? So especially if they're different. Um, Robust cross-cultural examination, Shane, have actually looked or linked social media use to body image concerns, dieting, body surveillance, a drive for thinness, and objectifying the body. And so today's teenagers especially vulnerable to the influence of some of the negative social media influences, the cyberbullying. I know at Not My Kid, they've got programs around cyberbullying, difficulties escaping social comparison, and just, you know, constantly comparing yourself to the next person where you're not getting the full book. You're only getting a chapter of that person's life. Um, TV messages and other messages around the appeals of thinness have often been pronounced. So today's culture and the increased access to the internet, dating apps, underground social media apps, I don't even know what a portion of those are, um, but you get a glimpse of them and it's really frightening to see that some of the things that are these genes are being exposed to are being seen as normal and healthy when in reality they're really dangerous. Um, and yet they seem to reinforce messages that reward revealing body features in ways that are more likely to then be objectified. We've worked with kids and not my kid, as you mentioned, you know, we've had kids mm-hmm. go through our early intervention substance use program who, when we sit down and we take the time to find out their story, we find out what led them to drink or use. 
we have met those kids who didn't feel good enough and they didn't feel good enough because they were doing that constant comparison with yeah. what they were seeing on social media, not understanding that that's what people were allowing them to see, whether it had been photoshopped or airbrushed or whatever it is. And so we encourage kids so frequently and not my kid to understand that what they're seeing on social media is someone's highlight reel and that those people mm-hmm. have fears and failures and challenges just like they do. So that leads me to my next question. As parents, grandparents, guardians, family members, etc., what can we as adults do to help the kids in our lives achieve and maintain healthy body image? Yeah, there's so much that can be done and that's such an important question to ask. So one thing that I do want to make sure I don't forget to mention is we often think of substances as alcohol, as drugs, as you know, medications, the reality is even food, even drink are seen mm-hmm. as substances. And what is often done in our culture um, is food, drink, substances are seen as rewards. And parents even sometimes do this innocently. They mean well, like, oh, you know, the kiddo was good this week, so let's get them ice cream or let's have pizza night. But that's reinforcing this message that somehow substance of any kind has the ability to bring joy and reward system versus being used for nourishment or simply for happiness. Like, okay, listen, I might like that. For me, I like sushi. That's my little nourishment. But I don't think I'm going to have it as a reward. I say I have it because I enjoy it. I factored in for that. And I've, you know, made sure that it's healthy within the confines of what healthy looks like in my lifestyle. So that's one thing that I always want to make sure that I stress is that it, the messages come straight down from parents, right? So when there's weight issues in either direction, when there's a lot of messages around substance use, we've got to really think about what are we enforcing from, from up down. So also I want to explicitly state that youth know that they're worth, we want our youth to explicitly know that they're worth and their qualities are not tied to their physical appearance. So for parents to really be be very direct, very clear about what you feel your child contributes to the world around them. What are the beautiful gifts that they have? You know, is your child generous with their heart, with their spirit, with their resources? Do they love sharing their toys? Well, I guess at an adolescent, we wouldn't be talking about toys, but perhaps their technology or their calculator for, you know, math class, mm-hmm. or whatever it happens to be. Look at those qualities that are really unique about your child. Tell them how much you admire them for those particular qualities. Does your child enjoy volunteering? Tell them how much you love their heart. Does your child treat animals really kindly or get straight A's in school? Don't just necessarily um, say great job on straight A's, but boy, I really admire your dedication to things you care about. Speak to the character, the core value that will also take them through life. Because it's not about the straight A's, it's about the work that it took to get the straight A's. So celebrating their commitment to their passions, their discipline, their integrity. Equally important, and what sometimes will break my heart when I'm working with patients, for example, with weight issues, is that many of them struggled with their weight starting in youth or their body shape starting in youth. Sometimes they're using the food or substance to manage emotions, Mm -hmm. to manage confidence, to manage depression. And, you know, so for parents to reinforce what they can do instead of, because sometimes we'll tell kids what not to do. And we do this with ourselves as adults as well. But what we should really be doing, what I would encourage us to do instead, instead of, because I don't like to use the word should, so I catch myself when I do it, is encouraging ourselves and our children to uh, do this instead. So you know what, instead of turning to that food, why don't we go for a walk together? Why don't we go to, you know, watch that movie you've been talking about? Why don't we spend an even play board game together, spending quality time or just engaging them in an activity or interest otherwise, something nurturing, could be a massage or a manicure. Um, so, you know, uh, let's see, often the disciplines and the education is missing. It's not unusual for there to be a history of neglect, trauma, or abuse even underlying some extreme eating disorders. I certainly don't want to make that leap or assume, but it's worth exploring. Could there be something? Would your child feel safe telling you? You know, are they afraid that if they were to disclose something, would there be an overreaction or a really strong reaction where it would potentially create a lot of turmoil and fear? Um, So making sure that your child knows it's safe to talk to you about anything without fear of consequence Mm -hmm. or fear of not being believed, because we hear that a lot. Definitely. Yeah. I also have here, I speak never to blame parents or guardians because they learned ultimately parenting from the generations before them. So it's not about fault. That said, I encourage us all to challenge ourselves to do better to learn more, to set the example by living the example. I often um, will hear parents, you know, want to put their kiddo in therapy, but then they don't have the skills to be able to reinforce what the child is learning in therapy. So I think it is actually really valuable for parents to do the work with the child, go to the groups together, go to 
interpersonal skills together. You know, I have a book where I present workshops on connecting with others and I encourage parents to come with their kids so that, you know, we're psychologists. Psychologists recommend all the time connecting and social skills and interpersonal skills, but sometimes we're introverted and somewhat awkward ourselves in those arenas. And so developing those skills so that as you teach, you're learning along the way. Um, and then the parents and guardians are the ones providing the meals, planning the snacks, having the meal plan. So consulting a nutritionist, ascertaining you know, when you are available, what, is, what do you have at home? What does that child have to reach for? Where, what are the healthy patterns that are being demonstrated by the whole family system? Putting healthy snacks in front of your child. You know, sometimes you'll hear messages, well, the child should just go, it's in the cupboard. Well, okay, but they're not doing that. So let's accept reality for what it is. Go ahead and do it for them. Put that bottle or put that bowl of free, you know, fruit or vegetables in front of your child if you notice your child consistently doesn't go get it for themselves. Eating well-balanced dinners together and as a family teaching the importance of moderation and portion control. So many of the people that I meet in my practice, they never learned these from their own parents. And so just being very conscientious of what are those messages that you are showing by example, because they say your kids don't necessarily do what you say, they do what you do. And Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. couple things that you mentioned uh, in your answer to that question um, stand out to me. I love the fact that you talked about if a child is going and they're receiving counseling, they're seeing a therapist for you know body image issues or, or whatever it is, encouraging the parents to learn how to properly support them because that kid can be making all the change in the world in that counseling environment. And if they return to a home environment, where the issues there haven't been addressed and not everybody's on the same page, it's not going to be as successful as it, as it could have been. The other thing that is so crucial is you talk about teaching other healthy coping skills so that food doesn't become an unhealthy coping skill. And when we work with kids, whether it is body image issues, substance use, self-injury, we provide them with what they were seeking, and that's a way to cope with the stresses of life, the anxiety, those transitional years as a middle school or high school student. And so the, the emphasis on healthy coping skills, that mm -hmm. is a solution and a strategy for almost every topic that we educate on at Not My Kid. You said one more thing that stands out to me, and you kind of already answered this next question, but I want to ask it anyway because there may be some mm -hmm. more details to it. You talked about being really careful about using food as a reward rather than looking at it as nourishment, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Just as important um, knowing what to do and what not to do is knowing what to not say or to what to not okay. do. And I, when I wrote this question, a couple things came to mind. I think hopefully as parents, we need to really be conscious of if we're making an offhand comment about a child's weight, the mm -hmm. impact that that can have, but also... What about the way that we speak about our own bodies in front of our kids? Is that something that we need to be cautious about? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many profound messages about how your child will internalize a lot of the things that they see. So, you know, kids are, are very much subject to what we call emotional contagion. So what they notice and feel and see and experience around them growing up, even from toddler years on, often it's not unusual for them to internalize that. It's not unusual for if a parent has anxiety for that child to grow up developing some of those patterns of anxiety. Um, and so avoiding telling your child or speaking in front of your child to the need for them to lose weight, or like you said, if the parent is self-critical in that way, of course, that child is going to see themselves as half of you. Um, in fact, this is one of my biggest pet peeves around parents who are separating or divorced when one speaks ill of the other parent. Mm -hmm. Anytime I have the opportunity, I will say to the parent, you know, may I offer some suggestion around caution? Because whenever you speak ill of your ex-partner or late partner, your child is hearing that as half of me is flawed, half of me is not good enough, half of me is broken. So focus instead on your wish for that child's health when it comes to their shape or weight. Offer to participate in healthy lifestyle activities, meals, exercise. So it's the see as I do, do as I do, not as I say, but actually engaging in that with them. Um, don't eat in front of your child uh, items that you you know, feel contribute to child difficulties. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not perfect either. And I totally understand that. But then it's a matter of like, how can you do that together? Not in a way of hiding behind the corner, but really digging in and engaging in that work with the child. Be careful not to shame that child, right? Instead, celebrating the good choices, focusing on how those good choices are improving their health, their energy, their focus. 
um, their cognitive health. You know, I think about, I don't remember the statistics, but I know there's some motivational speakers who will talk about, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, our, child, our children are really good at knowing what's wrong with them. It's just that we sometimes will struggle with what's right. And these adults can relate to that. It's so easy to be self-critical, especially when we're, we're tired, we're working hard, we're stressed, something else is going on in life. So make sure that if you are going to give your child constructive criticism, that you are balancing that out way on the other end. So if you're going to give one you know, potentially critical comment, make sure there's four or five positive kudos to go with it. Because otherwise, we have that tendency, and teenagers especially have a tendency to hold on to that one bad nugget that to them feels like a flaw, and almost at the expense of everything else good. So it's so important, I think, to weigh those skills and collect. That's true. All these years later, it's still fairly easy for me to remember the critical things that people said about me in those preteen and teen years. It's a little more challenging to to remember the the compliments, and and I that approach is so important. It's not that we can't provide constructive criticism, but make sure to balance that out, and and that ties back into what you had said earlier about you know, what do we do to help them maintain that healthy body image? And you talked earlier about making a point, being intentional about pointing out what is amazing and strong and impressive and the efforts you see them making because we're our own worst critics. And and in those teen years, a lot of times teens have already, you know, they're, they're beating themselves up pretty, pretty well over some of their stuff. Exactly. What do we look for When, when this, if this were to happen, if our child does end up facing body image issues. What do we look for? What are the red flags? What are the signs that we need to be vigilant that make sure that we don't miss? Yeah, so I think a few of the ones that probably stand out as a little bit more clear cut are wearing baggy clothes to hide body shame, for example, or that take away from accentuating any of our features. Wearing highly revealing clothes may be an indicator that your child is seeing his or her worth in body image or how people are viewing them. Um, This, of course, puts your child at risk of accepting attention for the wrong qualities being objectified, increasing the risk of unhealthy relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, If your child doesn't want to eat in front of you, that's a risk factor. Constantly having them think about or talk about their appearance. Social isolation for fear of being judged or appearing uh, ugly or unattractive. Constant efforts to change their appearance, whether it's from cosmetic procedures, tooth whitening, tanning, surgery. You know, my wish would be for every teenage person who goes to a parent and says, I would like to get this particular plastic surgery done for the parent to say, I absolutely love you just the way that you are. I don't think you need to accentuate or improve on anything. I think you're just perfect. You're beautiful to me. You know, instead of sure, whatever you want, when I hear the sure, whatever you want, that still subtly infuses this message of, I agree with you and that needs to be fixed. I know that's probably not the intention in most cases, but it is, it's ultimately sending this potential reinforcement that, you know, I agree and I'm willing to invest in getting that changed rather than helping you really feel empowered exactly as you were created. Um, Covering up certain physical features we talked about, especially in public, and then self-injury and damaging the body is another pretty obvious indicator, although sometimes not as easy to see because some teenagers really do a good job of being able to hide that because of the shame of being recognized for what's going on. Yeah, those self-injury scars can be, they can go to great lengths to cover those up, wearing unseasonably warm clothing, covering it up with multiple bracelets or watches, self-injuring on a part of the body that the general public or even family won't see. So that's a good one to mention that as well. the, The list that you mentioned If we start seeing those things, especially if we start seeing those things in combination, we start seeing those things in combination over a prolonged period of time, what do we do? How do we help? And I know that we should help, but I also know there's no substitute for professional help. So what would your advice be if we see those signs? Absolutely. I think for sure, professional help is is an important and critical first step. So, and letting your child know you love him, you love her, you see them exactly as we are. And when I say see, I don't mean with our physical eyes, but I see you. I see your heart. I see your pain. I care. And I'm here with you. I can hold space for you. You know, there's a fantastic video Brene Brown does called um, Empathy, where she shares how often we do the at leasting. Well, it could be worse. At least you're not fill in the blank. But that feels like you're not okay with their feelings. Instead, I love her reframe in the video where she says, you know, I don't know what to say, but I'm so glad you told me. And sometimes that is more powerful than any other alternative. So letting your child know that you want them to see themselves the way you do, as perfect as they were made, 
that you want to do the work with them to feel better, that you're at team, you're in it together, that um, let them know that you would like to talk to someone together and accept responsibility as your child's partner to want to help make positive changes. Say you're sorry if you missed the sign. Some parents have a really hard time with the words, I'm sorry. Some adults have a really hard time with the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry does not mean you failed. I'm sorry doesn't mean you're bad or wrong. I'm sorry means I care more about this relationship than I care about being right. What matters right now is your health, right? And your safety. So I am so sorry if I missed something or missed an opportunity to help you sooner. My role is to be your protector and you are a precious being. So where do we start? And really getting on that level with your child, sitting on the floor with them if you have to, and just kind of making sure if they're, and noticing if they're avoiding eye contact, by the way, you are probably making an impact because oftentimes we look away when it's getting too emotionally hard and you're getting scared and you're on the verge of crying. And we psychologists say that when we get tears, we've hit something in a productive, meaningful way. So while it's hard for the general public to sit in tearfulness, it is also impactful because something shifted. And that's where we need to be in order to make change happen. Change doesn't typically happen when everything is good and golly jolly good, right? And so it's when we're sad, it's when things feel a little more dark that we have a tendency to really look at what needs to change in our lives. So a cognitive behavioral trained therapist can really help identify harmful, faulty thinking patterns, habits of behaviors, physical fitness therapies can of course help with exercise. Uh, nutritionists can help establish healthy food choices, not a diet necessarily, because I look at diet as, as um, short-term, more drastic changes. Instead, one of the things I work on with my patients is healthy lifestyle changes, developing a healthy relationship with food and drink, and then healthy amounts of exercise to release endorphins and feel good chemicals. So those are the places to start. And then I think also too, the parents reinforcing with the teenagers, positive affirmations, words of affirmation, read the love languages book together, take the quiz and spend quality time letting your child know that your time is invaluable and is dedicated to them and distraction free. Don't let anything get in the way of that so that your child doesn't get this message that they're kind of on the sidelines. Make sure that they understand that they are your number one priority and that you'll turn that phone off, put it out of sight, because a phone that is on the table, even flipped upside down, is still a distraction that could very easily interrupt that quality time. And those nonverbals, too, That's uh -huh. that shows that I'm not shutting the entire world out for you right now where we need to make it clear I am holding this space for you. Everything else yeah. can wait. And we're here in this moment. And that goes back to what you said very early on, answering that question, talking about Brene Brown's talk on empathy. We don't need to solve all of their problems. And chances are, as parents, we're not going to be able to solve all of their problems. But what we need to do is make sure that they understand they are being heard, they are being listened to, we are empathizing, we are feeling with, we are feeling their pain, that in and of itself, the power of that where that person finally says, okay, finally someone recognizes this hurt in me. Someone is taking the time to listen without judgment or without distraction. And then that's where the information will come out where we will hopefully know better what help that they need. And you mentioned all the facets were great where you were talking about you know, everything from cognitive behavioral therapy to exercise to healthy lifestyle changes. The more pieces we can put in that puzzle, the higher the likelihood that, that we're gonna have success. It's like building that really strong recovery framework. Exactly, you got it. A lot of what you said actually, um, talking about that last question, how do we help if we see the signs of a body image challenge? A lot of that you talked about had to do with connecting with that individual. And that's another area of focus and expertise for you, creating meaningful connections with the people in our lives, including our kids. How do we create those meaningful connections with teens? It can seem like an uphill climb with how distracted we all seem to be collectively anymore. Let's go back to that smartphone on the table. And even more so when it comes to connecting with an age group that may be isolating a little bit more or at least seeking more dependence from uh, independence from us as parents. How do we create that connection? How do we make that happen in the teen years? Yeah, it definitely can be challenging. And I also think that when done, it is one of the most powerful connections that can be made. So I think 
one of the more obvious ones is showing interest in their interests, right? And so that's not just simply playing the video game with them once in a blue moon, but you know, I love the idea of setting aside regularly structured, scheduled, at least once a week distraction free time to spend with your child or children, right? And so, and if you have multiple kids, maybe having a certain night dedicated to each one, or if your schedule or work schedule doesn't allow for that, that's fine. But having several hours where literally all technology is set aside, and maybe, for example, each each of the kids get to choose the activity for the evening, and everybody is to engage in that activity together. It should involve laughter, it should involve dialogue and conversation, open-ended questions, leading by example as parents. So you know, if you're going to ask the kids to do something, put away their phones, you know, have a clean environment, use their manners, then lead by example, because otherwise our, our kids are quick to pick up on hypocrisy. They're quick to pick up on what doesn't match. Um, as far as that structured schedule, do your best not to reschedule. And I talk about this in my business world as well. My commitments to myself could be the easiest ones to let fall to the wayside because I'm my yep. own boss. And so it's so easy to be like, oh, I'll just let that one go. But I refuse. If I need to reschedule something and it cannot be avoided, I will never take it off my calendar. I will scoot it a couple of days, but I will not let that come off my calendar until I honor it. And it is very rare for me to even move it because my commitment to myself is so important. So having those meaningful activities scheduled, I also suggest as far as parents, like monitoring for cyberbullying. But of course, that's such a delicate conversation as far as how do you have that dialogue with your kids? That's probably a topic for a whole nother podcast because it's important to also foster trust, but there is so much bullying these days. Mm -hmm. And checking in if your child's mood seem to shift, if they seem, you know, and some parents might argue, well, you know, teenagers stay moody anyway. But it doesn't have to be that way. And still, even in a teenager who's maybe a little bit like more variable in their disposition, you still, as their parent, likely know their patterns. And if there is a shift in pattern, something probably happened. In cognitive therapy, we talk about the ABC model. So A is an activating event, B is our belief about it, what we tell ourselves, and C is the consequent emotion and outcome. So often people don't realize how often a thought happens before an emotion. So if you all of a sudden notice your child's emotion changes or in your own mind, you're going through your day and all of a sudden you're angry and you're not sure why, what did I tell myself? What went through my mind? Same thing for your teenager. What went through your head when, you know, at what point of the day did your mood change? What was going on? What happened at school? Tell me about a conversation you were having, but not as if in a way that you're prying open-ended questions that don't start with the word why. When we start with the word why, we tend to evoke defensiveness. So instead being in this habit routinely of having those dialogues, maybe purchasing question games or even just going on Google and questions to get to know your teenager and then print off a list for your teenager to ask you, questions to ask your mom, your dad, your guardian, your aunt, your uncle, and get in the habit of playing those regularly. That way when you have questions, it doesn't come out of the blue because it's part of your family dynamic. Um, avoiding words like but, instead use the word and. Even if you've got two great things to say, as soon as you plop in the word but, and I have this in my book, you've negated everything that came before. Mm -hmm. So I might wanna say, you know, kiddo, I just love your personality, but I tell you, your heart is unmatched. Well, it sounds like I was just about to say something negative and it takes away from that excitement because as soon as I said, but there's a kick of anxiety about how are they gonna undermine the positive. So paying attention to just some of the nuances of communication is so important. Um, and then, you know, one of my favorite things to recommend, Jane, is actually suggesting for parents to rotate. Let's say Friday night happens to be family night. Have every family member once a week pick a YouTube video theme, watch it on the big screen together. It could be a 10-minute Brene Brown video. It could be a 20-minute Tony Robbins video. It could be a video on anger management where everybody sits down and watches it and then have like some questions that you start rotating around, have fun with it, maybe use like a talking stick of some sort, but have that be a routine thing where everybody is learning the skills together. So it's not like the parent, you know, is innocent of it and the child needs to learn. No, we're all in this together. Parents can benefit from these just as much as the teenagers. That social and emotional learning as a family is as yeah. important as anything they will learn in school. When you mentioned the, the ABC model, I want to highlight that phrase you said again. I, I, that phrase stood out to me. I wrote it down. What did I tell myself? A lot of times, until we sit there and we make a point to think about it, I feel like sometimes we not, may not even be conscious of our inner monologue, what we've managed to convince ourselves of. Sometimes it's just mm -hmm. we don't take 30 seconds to go, 
is this true? Is this real? Is this good? A lot of times we'll run with something like that. And I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Back to something you said even earlier about parental uh, monitoring software, parental intelligence software. You mentioned the cyberbullying, and we, you know, we're seeing that quite a bit. We've mm-hmm. met a number of parents who had no idea that their teen was suicidal until a monitoring app caught certain language. And then also we're meeting a number of families whose kids have been approached online by predators. And as you said, you want to trust your kids, but it's like until, until that prefrontal cortex is done developing, until they're at that age where they're not as prone to impulsive decision-making, even the most intelligent, amazing, great kids with great parents can still give in to impulsive decision-making. And we can't help them as much as they need if we're not fully aware of what's going on. And sometimes they may not disclose that to us. You did a great job outlining how we get around some of those disconnections that we have right now. What do you see as some of the biggest obstacles that most commonly interfere with people being able to make connections in the era in which we live? I think that technology, unfortunately, I think it makes it way too easy to not have developed interpersonal skills for connection in the real world. And I'll tell you what, I'm a biggest advocate for connections in a virtual world. I mean, I think especially during the really challenging year we've had in 2020, I have absolutely pivoted so much of what I do with my workshops and events that I've created and created connections online and had very genuine friendships come from those. But I also am incredibly adept at connecting in person where I don't see that as often. I think that the technology barriers have been really, really just unfortunately very impactful. I can't tell you how often I'll be out and about and I'll be sitting at a community table and I'll want to speak to the person next to me and just cheer somebody up or make somebody's day or get somebody to laugh. But they're just staring at their phone Mm -hmm. the whole time. They don't even look up or they're, you know, it's one thing if they're on the computer working but often people just seem so uncomfortable. They don't even want to be approached and they certainly are not, it seems like willing to make the approach a lot of times. And so I think that often that is such a distraction. And then it's easy for folks to leave an event and go home and say, oh, that was a waste of my time. There was nothing there for me. But it's like, well, you didn't even take your head away from your phone for a second to notice that there were people wanting to connect with you, but you missed it. And there's so often too, that I think our own pessimism in a really hard world sometimes gets in the way as well. And I talk about that in my book, Don't Be a Stranger, where it's like, you know, if you go into these events thinking there will be nothing for me, thinking that, you know, that there's like an agenda where people have a motive, then you're going to see the lens through that that, and see the world through that lens. So Wayne Dyer had a great quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I love that because it's about take a different lens with you. So I think your our expectations, you know, with all of the violence that's happened in our world, I understand why people have become skeptical. You know, we grow up with these messages, stranger danger. We hear about these awful, awful terrorist acts, racial acts, political division, all of it does create, especially because people are so unfiltered often on social media, but you know what, Gina, I'll also say this, and this is not to shame or judge people who have that in their world, but what I will say is I have a Facebook page of over 3,000 people that I've built up over the years, and it is my playground. People are positive, they are joyful, they play with each other, they're, they're funny, they joke around with whoever like comments on my page. There is a an implicit, unspoken rule that people just seem to know that you don't show up negatively in Alicia's I've watched this firsthand. I have seen this. Thank you. Thank you. So I don't think I'm anything magical, but I think I do my best to lead by example. And I have a zero tolerance for the occasional negative comment is gone. It's not going to sit there and I will not engage. It is a choice not to engage. You set that tone. I noticed that. You very much set that tone and then people just naturally follow. I knew that when I asked about the obstacles, you know, if I were to ask 100 people about what are the obstacles to connection and communication right now, probably 95 of them would say something about social media. You said something that I wouldn't have necessarily thought of, and it is equally as important when you talk about coming into a situation with certain negative expectations, Mm -hmm. having your guard up, it's, it is really hard to create a connection if you've got a wall around you. And so that is, I'm glad you mentioned that. That would not have come to mind for me. You mentioned also in your answer, you mentioned your book. You have written a book called Don't Be a Stranger, Creating Connections and Memorable First Impressions in Everyday Life. 
What led to you writing the book? So it was actually just honestly to honor my dad's memory. So when I got my doctorate, my dad and I were in the car and I think I had just gotten licensed and I was all excited. I felt like I was finally done. I was at the pinnacle of my career. Daddy, it's all done. And he was like, great. When are you going to publish your book? And I was like, wait, what? Like, what book? I don't, I don't want to publish a book. I'm done like forever. I'm not going to read another book. And of course I was being facetious, but you know, I've since lost my dad and my dad was the most amazing man I've ever met. He was just magical to me, walked on water. And you know, it's those moments, it's those nuggets of wisdom, which I want to mention later on as well, that you remember and you cherish, especially in people that have touched your lives, whether they're family or whether it's a stranger you happen to come across in your path of life. And so because that meant something to him, it became something that meant something to me. So for years, I started to like play with other topics. I started to work on other books with, with colleagues and it just, never came as naturally and so this time I was ready I was like this is it I need to get this published and I just need to pick a topic that comes naturally and this just flows and for me sharing joy and kindness with strangers was it so you know I I basically feel like it's my platform to promote a message of being a part of the kindness I want to be in the world so I run workshops where people come together from around the world now it's been really cool I've had workshops with Europe and Poland and Africa and just all around the world through this group called Internations, and we just join the dialogue on overcoming barriers to connection. And so it's been so incredible because I love talking about feelings and I love talking about relationships. Then I find that some people connect to get something out of it. And that's why they'll often stop themselves. It's that whole, well, why bother if there's nothing in it for me? And I'm like, well, how about connect to give? Connect simply to connect. Connect to be a part of that light that we all want to see in the world. Maybe it's not about us. Maybe it's about the other person whose path we happen to be in today. My background, my research background is in suicide research. So my grad school advisor happened to be a suicidologist. So that was the path of least resistance. And I'm so grateful for those years of experience where I'm not scared to have those really difficult conversations. It's when your adolescent, your family, your friend feels afraid to talk about something with you that I am then afraid for them. They should be able to talk to us about anything and know that we will sit there and say, I'm listening, not I understand, because we don't understand. I cannot ever understand. And to say to someone, I understand how you feel is not true because that diminishes their reaction. I'm more likely to get defensiveness out of them, right? It's instead, I'm here with you and I'm on this journey with you. What can I do? So that was kind of what drove me to want to write the book because I know when a person feels like they're not connected, that that ultimately leads them down this path of loneliness. And I also know through Tom Joyner's uh, interpersonal theory of suicide, thwarted belongingness is one of the primary key components necessary for suicide to take place. So if I can help eliminate one of the three like criteria for suicide, that would be a pretty nice life. Absolutely. And and you mentioned that that is such a major underlying cause in the people that I've worked with and I've helped that have, have dealt with those types of thoughts. That feeling of disconnection and loneliness and isolation, no one understands, no one ever could. And sometimes just you being that one person to say, mm -hmm. I'm here, I'm listening, you know, I, I can feel your pain, like I am in this moment with you. The amount of weight that is lifted just by that is incredible. We don't have to be superheroes. Mm -hmm. We don't even have to be behavioral health professionals. The willingness to take that time to hold that space, to be vulnerable and non-judgmental with them, we all have the ability to do that. The book, this book sounds amazing. Who is the target audience? Who would, who do you feel would benefit from reading this book? Is there a certain age range, or who is the audience for this book? It's so funny. I feel like the most obvious audience, as far as like the the public impression, is people with anxiety or some sort of like nervousness or wanting to develop interpersonal skills. However, I'll tell you. I think anybody from, you know, people with anxiety socially, people preparing for job interviews or grad school interviews, skills for building relations in schools and jobs, people in business wanting to build up professional businesses, people in sales wanting to build up their portfolios. Honestly, so much of my book came from skills that I just, by being a student of my own behavior. So I have my Rodan and Phil skincare business in the anti-aging arena where I had no business being in. And I, I built my business on the kindness and generosity of strangers. And so in preparing this book, I challenged myself to really truly look at every single day, what did I do? How was I successful in building? And how have I been successful as a psychologist, as a speaker who strives to practice what I preach? And I'm not 100% good at it, but I'm pretty darn good at it. And so I literally sat there and thought, who am I? 
What do I do when I leave the house? Why am I always meeting people? Why do people gravitate toward me? I'm not a magical unicorn. I'm not some supermodel that walks around the world that would attract random people, guys and girls to her. So what am I doing? And so much of what I'm doing is those positive, just little nuances of connection, laws of civility, laws of attraction, eye contact, posture, directing your smile at people and simply appearing approachable. Um, there's in my book workshops, I often present this concept of strangers are our mirrors. And the idea of that is that what you what you are getting is what you're giving off. So if you feel like a person who's always surrounded by negativity and depressed people and negative people, what are you giving off that is attracting that back and or what lens are you looking through? Because everywhere I go, strangers are my playground. I, sh I approach them with curiosity and adventure and and glee, and I, I joke around and banter with strangers everywhere I go. When I travel the world by myself for my business, I meet people everywhere I go. And to this day, I still have friends that I've met across seas. And some of them have actually flown out to visit with me. I've flown out to Florida to visit a girl I met in the Caribbean three years ago. So they're not even just momentary connections. Sometimes though they are. And it is just that shared light, right? That's how I look at that. So who could benefit from it? Heck, anybody. Flirting, dating, relationships. You want to like spice up your marriage? Read the book because so much about it is about helping people feel seen. If people are interested in learning more about the book or finding a copy of it, what's the best way for them to do so? And we'll put that down in the show notes. No, I appreciate it. So I have a website that kind of integrates all the different things that I do. That's forenewyouq.com, the number four and the number two. Um, otherwise, they can order the book, Don't Be a Stranger, on Amazon. They can order it through Barnes & Noble. I would really love if people would go to their favorite or local bookstores and ask that the bookstore order some copies for their shelves. And then just, you know, for me, it's not about the money at all. So like, you know, pick up the book for 20 minutes and sit in the cafe, read it and put it back. Like, <laughs> enjoy some of those skills, but I really want people to practice the skills that they're reading. I, uh, one of my biggest gifts, actually, was I did a book sale and there was an older gentleman who came over and he asked if he could, like, look at the book. Or And I said, and I could tell he was trying to be polite and not touch it. And I said, sir, please go right ahead. You can grab it and you can sit over there, read it, enjoy it. And then he could, didn't have good light. And he said, well... Um, I'm just having a hard time seeing. And I said, well, do you want to take it further into the cafe? He probably sat there for an hour and a half with the book, the entire course of the book sale. And it was incredible. I watched from a distance. And this man who at first was very socially, you could just tell he was distanced. He didn't really engage, didn't really feel comfortable with eye contact. I'm watching him read my book from afar. And I'm watching him look down at a woman's hot pink shoes. Because in the book, it talks about the power of color. Look for something to compliment. Look for a way to bring out someone's smile. And I see him point to her shoes. And then she starts laughing. And wow. her little boy goes over to him. And for the next 45 minutes, I watch him giggle and laugh with a sweet little boy as the boy played with him. And all because he sparked that connection by complimenting her hot pink shoes. And then when he brought back the book, I actually signed it and gave it to him as a gift because I will never forget that moment. That was priceless. And so, you know, it's ask the local bookstores to just grab it and put it on a shelf and then practice what you read. On my website, under the tab on invest in, uh, invest in others, there's even a free worksheet and there's like little teasers and tips that didn't make it into the book. So I encourage people to go up there, download that, take notes on some of the things that you challenge yourself to try differently. And that's for a new you com. Say that one more exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. For a N E W Y O U, the number two.com. Excellent. We will make sure that we have that down in the show notes. That story about that gentleman with the book and the, and the little boy, that's incredible. You cannot buy a PR story that good. You cannot no. hire a public relations firm to say something that good when you, when that's what the whole book is about. And then you're watching that guy, that connection unfold right there in front of you. It's a really yeah. cool story. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything I may have overlooked? Yeah, you know, this has been so wonderful. Thank you just for including me on this. This has been a really fantastic opportunity. I think what I would love to leave listeners with is my mantra. So do it scared, do it ugly, do it often. The idea here is whatever it is, whatever the it is, do it scared. So if the it is talking to strangers or connecting with people or learning a new behavior, learning a new job, learning a new skill, you're going to feel uncomfortable. Step into it. Growth happens on the other side of discomfort. If you're changing your eating patterns, your healthy lifestyle, if you're starting therapy, step into it scared. Do it ugly has nothing to do with superficial looks. It has to do with the fact that you're probably going to be awkward. You might make a fool of yourself. You'll probably say something you regret saying. 
that's okay. It is part of the process. Failure is not the opposite of success. It is a part of the journey to success. And then do it often. It's when we keep doing it scared and doing it awkward that we eventually do it well. So mastery comes from successive experiences of, uh, or you know, ongoing experiences of success. So feel the fear and do it anyways. And then fear about connecting with others. It often sounds like I don't wanna, or there's nothing in it for me, so why bother? So I'm not successful in my skincare business because I enjoyed skincare. Had a, I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't good at sales. It wasn't because I knew anything about the industry or because I grew up extroverted. I didn't. I am now because I have trained myself to be this way. I've trained my face to be smiley. I've trained myself to kick out of my head the negative thoughts and replace them with positive and to trust people because I've had I've had the kind of the I've done the work where I've, I've changed the way that I speak and the way that I choose experiences. So I do a lot of things scared, but I believe in myself as the vehicle to overcoming obstacles and to excelling. And so I encourage people believing yourself as the vehicle, choose to view others, choose to view yourself with curiosity, intrigue and adventure. So break yourself free of the boxes that we've set ourselves in and then continue to believe in the goodness and excusing the exceptions with grace and patience. Because often we, we use the exceptions as the rule and instead I say, excuse the exception with grace and patience. So I hope that listeners will join me in creating a kinder world, one memorable moment at a time. I created a workshop this past year called Nuggets of Wisdom. It's second Wednesday of every month through Zoom. Anybody is welcome to join us. So I'll send that information to you, Shane, if it's okay to include that too. Absolutely. Um, I have an email list and I can send out the links, but basically at 4.45 to 6 p.m. Arizona time, people just join and they share quotes, words of wisdom from people that have impacted them. It is beautiful time shared and a reminder of so much kindness in the world. And so thank you so much just for having me. I hope people find good tools on the website and on my blog. We will make sure we get the nuggets of wisdom information down in the show notes as well. Once again, the book is Don't Be a Stranger, Creating Connections and Memorable First Impressions in Everyday Life. Dr. Alicia Nadiman, thank you so much for sharing your time, your input, your experience with us. Thank you for being here on Win This Year. Oh, my sincerest pleasure. Absolutely. As always on Win This Year, we'd like to give you some resources in case you are facing a mental or behavioral health challenge or you're helping someone who is. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. The crisis text line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741741. Community information and referral services are available by dialing 211 or visiting 211.org. And the Not My Kid text line can be reached by texting the word QUESTION to area code 602-580-0665. Once again, text the word QUESTION to area code 602-580-0665. Thanks once again to our guest, Dr. Alicia Nadiman. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast platform. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear at notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes, along with all the links for Not My Kids social media. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Thanks again for listening to Win This Year.